Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is December 2nd, 2015. This is episode 1685 of the Survival Podcast. And Wednesdays we usually have an interview for you, and this week is no exception and it will not disappoint you. We have an awesome interview with an awesome guy. His name is Curtis Stone. He's going to be with us in just a minute. We're going to talk about urban farming, and we're going to talk about a lot of other things, work ethics, generational things, uh, homesteading generation, uh, just so much in this interview. A little bit about anarchism in the end and how to build a business in agriculture without owning any land. And that's what his new book, The Urban Farmer, is all about, and his online course, The Urban Farming Course, is all about. You'll learn about all that and more in just a minute. Before we do, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, BulkAmmo.com. When I need ammo and I want it in bulk, I go to BulkAmmo.com. Why? Because the name says what you're going to get. Ammo in bulk at great prices with lightning-fast shipping. How fast is their shipping? It's almost like this. I've placed my order. I go on about my day, and I hear, gee, who's that? It's the postman with my ammo. How did that happen? It's not quite that fast, but it feels that fast. I think for most of us that think, you know what I should do? I should run out to the you know sporting goods store or whatever and, and bulk up on ammo this week. By the time you got around to doing it, it could be sitting on your doorstep. That's how quick their shipping is. They have all of the common cal calibers, great pricing, excellent service, and they're a long-term sponsor. They've been with us for, I think, four years now. So when you need ammo and you need it in bulk, get on over to Bulk Ammo. Remember, ammo is one of the three components to the, the, the triangle of gun operator effectiveness. You've got to have the weapon. You go to a gunfight without a gun, you got a problem. You, the operator, needs training, but... Even with a good operator and a good firearm, without the ammo, man, that's the terminal tackle, as we say in fishing. You've got to have the ammo to put food on the table, to protect life and property, and to train effectively. Check out BulkAmmo.com today, and remember, they do do a discount for members of the Support Brigade. Just take the benefits section of your MSB for more information on that. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor. Before there were any sponsors, there was Vic Rontala saying to me, Hey, Jack, we love what you're doing. We want to be part of it, and we want to know how we can sponsor your podcast. Problem was, I was in like episode 20, and there were like, I don't know, 70-ish people listening to the show. And I just didn't feel right taking anybody's money in return for exposing them to just 70 people in an audience who may or may have not continued to listen. But what I said was, hey, Vic, let me tell you what. Just just stick with us, and when we're ready, I will give you the first opportunity to become a sponsor of the show. It was quite a while later. It was February of the next year that we launched the MSB, and we launched the sponsorship program along with the Member Support Brigade. And at that time, Vic stepped up as a sponsor and a discount partner. Vic has now been with the Survival Podcast as a sponsor and supporter for seven years. Uh, that's why I call them the original Survival Podcast sponsor, because they were first, and they've been loyal as anything could ever be. Seven years in the podcasting world? Are you kidding me? 
If you check out Safe Castle, you'll find all the things you need for your prepping, uh, from long-term storage foods to the stuff to make your own long-term storage foods, from the practical to the tactical, and everything in between. If you check out their sister site, you can link over from safecastle.com. You'll find they make some of the best hardened shelters there are. And I don't know if you've paid attention, but there's these things called tornadoes that come around once in a while. So a shelter isn't just a bunker in the ground to hide away from the Illuminati. There are practical, everyday reasons to have hardened shelters. You can find all of that and more with the original survival podcast sponsor, Safe Castle Rule. Remember, they also do a discount membership program. It's $49, and you get big discounts on just about everything they sell for the rest of your life. But they are such awesome sponsors, they give that away to all members of My Support Brigade, effectively paying for your first year of the MSB right there. Check them out today. Again, safecastle.com. Next up, uh, let me remind you guys about the Member Support Brigade. Hey, you want to support the show and the work that I do? Then the best way you can do that is get over to the survivalpodcast.com, click on members and sign up to be a member of the Survival Podcast Members Support Brigade. This is a great time to do that because from now until close of business Sunday night, I am running a special. $30 for your first year of the MSB instead of 50 That puts down the uh, cost supporting the show in your first year to about $0.12 cents an episode. And it's not just, hey, give Jack some money because he does a podcast. It's actually a really great product on its own. It provides discounts to things you're probably buying anyway, from the practical to the tactical and everything in between. Everything from you know discounts on ammunition to seeds for your planting, discounts for plants. Uh, discounts on food storage products to make your own food storage. You name it, I've got I've got over 60 different people selling some really cool stuff, even some really cool stuff just for Christmas. How about olive basket with infused olive oils and EcoSense? Really cool stuff for the ladies, guys, trying to figure out what to buy for Christmas. How about support the show, get a discount on some cool stuff, and get credits from your ladies? It's all available right now. Just go to Survival Podcast. Dot com. Click on members. The discount code for that sale, because we just had Thanksgiving, is turkey, T-U-R-K-E-Y. Use that when you sign up. Get your first year for 30 bucks. Most people tell me at 50 bucks a year, it's still an outstanding value. Uh, next up today, I uh, want to let you guys know, if you want to come hang out with me next Saturday, not this Saturday, next Saturday, you can if you're local to the area. You can come from anywhere. You can come here from too if you want to, but I would think that most people would come to something like this to be local. Uh, we're going to get together around 10 a.m. at my place, and uh, we're going to plant trees. We're going to work till about 2 o'clock. We're going to have some awesome food, drink some beer, sit around and talk, and by about 5 o'clock, well, I'm going to throw everybody out of here so we can get back to our weekend evening, Dorothy and I. Uh, it should be fun. We're calling it Operation Locust because we are going to be planting a couple hundred locust trees and maybe some other productive trees and possibly, depending on what the weather's like, even putting in a little bit of irrigation. It'll be a really easy irrigation job. Those of you who were here before, we are digging ditches and all. That's not going to happen. It's going to be really, really simple. Basically moving some dirt, building a berm, putting some uh, pipes underneath it for one little leg of irrigation to build some trees up around the duck holding area. Not even sure if we'll do that, but we'll definitely be planting trees. You know, if we're doing 200 trees and 10 people show up, everybody plants 20 trees, and These are little trees, guys. These are trees you dig a hole about the size of a two-coffee-cup size and stick a tree in. So it'll be fun. It'll be an easy day of work. We'll have a lot of fun and a lot of information exchange. Try to make it informative for you. I'm charging 15 bucks for that workshop. Couples can come for $25. You get a $5 discount. I'm only doing that so I can feed you well. I don't want to bring you guys out here and give you freaking hot dogs. You know, I really don't. I want to feed you well and put some beers in you and have a great day. If you want to bring kids, kids are welcome to this. Uh, free. Absolutely no cost for kids, but they have to have a parent or guardian. 
I, I can't have you showing up at 16 by yourself, even though you can drive. I, I just can't have the 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 finance the, uh, the the legal risk there. So kids have to be accompanied by a parent or guardian. Uh, you can find out more at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Just click on uh, there. Well, actually, just go there and look for a, a post that says "Join me to plant trees at Nine Mile Farm on 12 13 15." I think that's wrong. I think it's 12 12 15. It's 12, I'll change that, straighten that out, and um, get that squared away. And uh, fill out a little form, and uh, see you then. I am limiting this to ten vehicles. We've had so much rain. We have so much mud. Uh, I can park ten vehicles without screwing anything up. I am not limiting the headcount. Uh, so once the vehicle count is locked up, I'm going to leave the post open. You guys can coordinate. There is a whole bunch of big box stores like four miles from here, like Lowe's, Home Depot, stuff like that. Guys could meet up and take one vehicle here. It would be really easy to do, and it will help me to manage my land and, and not cause damage while I'm trying to rehabilitate it. So that's why that's going on. Anyway, just want to throw that out there today. Um, next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1685. Uh, because the episode 1685, I got three for you from Alex Shrugged at tspwiki.com. I have Musical Genius is Born Again, Again, and Again. I have Long Live the King and the King's Bastard. And I have French Texas. Not taxes, French Texas. Uh, I'm going to read Musical Genius is Born Again and Again and Again, because I have an interesting take on this. Three musical geniuses are born in this one year. Johann Sebastian Bach is born into the musical family. His father is a musical director, and his uncles are professional musicians. His music is most immediately recognized as the opening piece in the animated film Disney's Fantasia. Click here for a Disney version. And you can look, click to these links by going to TSP Wiki today to hear this great music. We have George Frederick Handel will soon be recognized as a child prodigy in music, but his father will want him to become a lawyer. When the Duke hears the kid play, the father will be overruled. Most people recognize Handel's inspiring Hallelujah Chorus. It will make you cry, guaranteed. There's a link to listen to that. And they have Domenico Scarletti is born into a family that couldn't care less about music. Music, yet he will build a reputation that will survive into the modern day. I did not instantly recognize his music, but after sampling one of his sonatas, even a tin ear like mine was impressed. Click here for a sample on guitar. I think what's interesting is these three musical geniuses, legitimate musical geniuses, are all born in the same year. And it makes me, in my take on this, Think about the fact that I think certain things happen when it is time for them to happen. I don't think you have to be a religious person or even a spiritual person to understand just the, the timing of the music that is the universe itself to, to kind of appreciate that. And what I mean is a lot of times what I see is rivals with inventions or things like that that they, they like they seem to be copying each other, but when you actually look at what they're doing, both of them came to their their thing, as it were, independently of each other, and they just kind of burst on the scene at the same time because it's time for that technology to be there. And you, you often look and see many people in the same space starting to do the same thing at the same time, and you think, well, everybody's getting into that because it looks like an opportunity. And sometimes it's the case, but I've seen enough of it where I know the people involved to know that they just all kind of went, like, it's time for this. And, and I think there's just something about that that we think about great inventors and say, like, well, if that person came along, if, if Alexander Graham Bell came along, we wouldn't have the phone today. I think that's preposterous. I think it was time for the phone, and, and Bell just got to it first. I, it, it's like saying there'd be no radio today without Marconi. 
I think without Marconi, somebody else would be known for inventing the radio. I think without Edison, someone else would be known as the guy that created the first light bulb that was you know, functional and workable and, and replicatable and usable. That, that there, are, there are just times for things to happen. And I think there's a time for things to happen in, in major turnings, too, like a resurgence in urban agriculture. I think there's a time for that, too. And I think that that's why I, I think that this is a great interview for today, because one of the guys making that happen in one particular way is my special guest today, Curtis Stone. He's an awesome guy. I'm glad to have him with us. And with that, hey, Curtis, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. All right, guys, and with that, I want to say, hey, Curtis, man, welcome back to the Survival Podcast. Hey, happy to be here. Man, I'm glad to have you back on the air. Um, we're going to talk about a lot of things today, urban farming, your new book on the subject, and, and quite a bit of other stuff. And With you and I, we're going to get into probably some off-topic stuff, too, because that's just <laughs> what we do. But there's people probably, Curtis, that haven't heard of you or haven't heard the first interview with you. So could you kind of tell people who you are and what you're doing today and kind of the, the path you took to get there because it's not exactly a straight line path. Yeah, yeah, totally. So my, my background is actually in uh, music composition and performance. Uh, I spent all of my 20s and even my teens as a, as a performing touring musician. Um, and, but I got into farming, um, kind of worried that the world was going to go to shit. And uh, I, I, you know, realized I didn't really have much of value to offer people in that kind of scenario. So I was kind of motivated into farming through fear in a way, though that's not my motivation any longer. But um, I got really interested in organic agriculture and tried to uh, carve out a plan for myself how I would farm. And that involved buying land. But at the time, I didn't have money and I, that wasn't something I could do. So I heard about people doing urban farming and um, I was really inspired by that. And so I started... Um, collecting backyards and farming in people's backyards in the city of uh, Kelowna, BC, Canada, where I where I live, and uh, it really it took off. I I made money at it right away, and I grew the business. Um, I doubled the business for four years in a row, and then I kind of found an equilibrium that worked at a smaller scale and went scaled down. And then um, yeah, that's kind of where my farm is. So we're specialized in uh, we grow about twenty three different products for restaurants and farmers markets and our farm's a third of an acre so it's very small but the farm can grow 75,000 or more on a third of an acre in a seven month growing season and I also wrote a book about urban agriculture which we'll talk about uh, called The Urban Farmer and I, uh, I'm a public speaker and consultant on uh, urban agriculture issues and stuff like that as well. So yeah, let's talk a little bit about your book here in the beginning. You've got this book. It's actually not yet available, but uh, people can go pre-order it on Amazon as of today. And uh, can you kind of tell us about your book and why you wrote it too? I mean, um, you know, I mean, there's tons of books out there, and so when someone takes on the task of writing a book, it's not as easy as anybody that's never done it thinks it is. Yeah. So, so what made you driven enough to go ahead and and, and follow through with this? And I, it's pretty much a done deal now. You're just waiting for it to actually be available yeah yeah the book is finished it's printed i i even have copies locally i'm having a, a local book launch event here this friday um but you know i i've been speaking on urban farming for ever since i got into it and and i, I think it was like my, my background in music and performance i was really comfortable being in uh, uh, like in front of an audience and so the year i started farming even before i was actually farming crops People were asking me to come and do talks at their garden club or their high school or the college and whatnot. And that led to 
many other things, conferences, and then being a you know very busy consultant for other farms. Um, that just after years of doing that, um, I developed a pretty good relationship with Jean Martin Fortier, um, which I, I believe you've met before. You know who he is, and um, him and I became pretty close. We met in Montreal at a at a, at a conference. And uh, he was like, man, you should write a book. And so he connected me to his publisher, and they were totally into the idea. And so I just sent them an outline, and they were really ready to – they loved it. And so I went from there. Um, you know, writing this book, I, what, I, what I tried to do was do things that not a lot of other people have written about. And um, because I've been consulting in, with other farmers for you know four or more years now – and traveling a lot, I've seen a lot of the challenges that farmers face. And the biggest things I see is is their marketing and their business structures and, and how that correlates to their production systems. And so that's what I wrote this book about. Um, in my book, you don't learn about compost and building soil um, because there's hundreds of other books out there that cover that stuff. My book is really focused on production and how that correlates to marketing and managing your business. And there's, it's, it's very detailed. I think it, it will probably be the geekiest book on farming ever written because I have an entire chapter on spreadsheets alone, like how you manage spreadsheets, how these correlate to everything. And so I really tried to find a niche that, 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 um, that hadn't been looked at before. And that was kind of the goal of the book. Yeah, it makes perfect sense to me. I mean, you know, we run our little duck farm here and people, when they have questions, generally have questions about how to produce duck eggs. Well, I don't produce the duck eggs. The ducks crap the duck eggs out. My job is to make sure the ducks don't die and then make sure that somebody with money comes here and gives me money and takes the duck eggs away. Mm-hmm. And, and that is, in a business, and that's like I think so many people have this dream of farming that that just gets left out of the equation in their head. I have to learn how to farm. Farming can be damn hard, as you know. But in the end, sooner or later, everybody and anybody that wants to can figure out how to grow food. It is a piece and a very important piece of the equation. But like you're growing a lot of crops that are quick turnover crops, high dollar cash value crops like lettuces mm-hmm. and greens, right? If yeah. it sits for a week, you're screwed. It's got to come, yeah. be produced, be cut, be harvested, clean, packaged out the door, and it's got to be turned into a profit. Or you've just done all that work for nothing because – Farming is a very real profession to me because there's no uh, like participation trophy. There's, yeah, no, exactly. there's you know what I, you know what I mean. Like you're special, you're, yeah. and you can you can be eighty percent successful as in you've produced wonderful crop. But if you can't commit on the the, the more important twenty percent of actually turning it to profit, you get zero. Yeah, if they you can't, if you can't me, sell it. that's it, right? Yeah, if you can't sell your stuff, then you're you're losing money because you're putting in the work, and then you're so you're 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 expending. So yeah, that's that's exactly it. And 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 really, the the most difficult part of farming is managing the business and and taking care of the marketing. So those are the things that I really get into in the book. Um, I mean, the production systems are there too because there's a lot of innovation that I've done. Um, within urban agriculture there, especially when in terms of interplanting and really aggressive um, rotating strategies for crops because part of the reason that my farm on 15,000 square feet can make $75,000 and way more is because of the way I'm crossing things over and there's never soil that's sitting there bare. Everything is planted all the time and it's a very... um, uh, aggressive strategy on what's being turned over and when. So understanding 
what your crop date to maturities are and when the next crop is going in on top of that. But also the thing that I do that a lot of other farmers do is I have a pretty high level of improvisation with my crop plan. Like I don't, I don't make just a static crop plan and plant out what's going to go in every bed for the entire season and what's going to follow each bed. I, I spread it out. Uh, I mean, I, I, I improvise to what I'm hearing from the marketplace. So if I see a trend changing with restaurants and I'm producing too much of crop X, then I have to go, okay, I have to stop producing so much because I'm losing money if I'm producing something I'm not selling. So I'm constantly changing out what's happening on the farm. And so that's a very um, involved way of, you know, bending and flexing to what the market demands. And th- and that's how our farm can make the money it does. If we just ran a CSA program or uh, just sold at farmer's markets, it, it wouldn't work that way. But because I can move big volumes to restaurants and I'm constantly shifting to where the demand is, I'm doubling down on the things that work and I'm eliminating or reducing the things that aren't. And that's the key is because some farmers will produce a certain product and they'll just they'll have, say, a 40% spoilage rate each week and they don't really pay attention to that where it's like, look, you're losing 40% on this crop every week. You need to change that. You need to reduce that crop allocation so that you're selling 100% or at least 95% of what you're producing and then double down on the things that are working where there's a demand for that you know you can increase. Yeah, definitely. I mean, what are some other common mistakes you see with new farmers? I think that it's to me there's there's generally two sides. There's there's overspending and then there's underselling. And then like you're bringing up a third thing really in the middle of wasting production. Yeah, there oh there's there's a lot of common mistakes. One one thing is um that's pretty well there's a few. I'll I'll say one that I find kind of funny that's in the space of urban agriculture right now. It's everybody wants to start a non-profit. Oh god. And I knew, I knew you'd like. Oh this God! One. And so everybody wants to start a nonprofit, and then you know, there's they wonder why it's just not picking up and getting steam. It's because you need to have somebody in there that's willing to work till midnight if that's what has to be done. Yeah. And you don't get that in nonprofits, and I don't know what it is about this space yeah. that in ur- urban agriculture, I think it's sort of a combination of there's sort of like the social justice element, or there's like. You know, a lot of academia interested in, so you get these kind of people that are, that, they're, they're not used to, running a profitable business isn't something they learn about in university. So they want to do a nonprofit. And this is like, honestly, Jack, the number one failure I'm seeing today. Uh, if you would ask me a year ago, I would have said something different, but today I'm seeing this so often and these farms, they're just not making traction. And then, and then you get these people who's tried it for a year or two and then they come out and they say, Oh, that doesn't work. It's just like, don't don't throw everybody else on the bus because it didn't work for you. It didn't work for you because you don't have anybody there that's ready to just give her. And that's what you need, at least to get it off the ground. Once a farm is is established and it's and it's moving forward consistently, you can kind of step back a bit. Like that's that's where the place I'm at with my farm right now is I don't even need to work full time on my farm anymore. I've got enough systems in place and people that are helping that know what to do and all these all, all these protocols are in place just like you'd have a operations manual on a in a factory these things exist on our farm and so we can we can step back and and I, now I'm really focused on just more innovation is developing new techniques strategies and technology on on better ways to farm but you know if you can't get ahead to a place where your farm is profitable um that's not going to happen so so that that's what I see a lot of the other really common stuff is like 
people just don't, they, they need to take like a three day business course. This is the most, this is probably the yeah. most common thing I see with new farmers is they go, I want to farm because I like the idea. I like the lifestyle. And that, that's exactly why I got into it. But they go, I'm just going to grow stuff and hope that it sells. Yeah. Well, that doesn't really work that way because the, the problem is, is a lot of people in this space too really don't like capitalism. They think making money's bad. And so they just don't really think they need to structure their farm like a business that has a product to sell. And they just grow stuff and then they're sitting and July rolls around when it's hot and everything's producing and they're throwing half their stuff away. And that's the, that, that's the thing that sucks is that if you're throwing stuff away, that's work you're not getting paid for. In fact, you're losing. That's costing you money because you had to do all the work to get that stuff in the ground and get it to maturity. Yeah, you know, Mark Shepard says three different types of things to me. He says things that I'm like, you smart ass. And then he says things that are like, what the hell are you talking about? And then he says things where I'm like, that is the most brilliant way to put things I've ever heard. And at PV2, he said, if you start a nonprofit before you have a profitable organization connected to it, you have a professional begging company. Yeah, I call them PBOs, professional begging organizations. Oh, my. And I, when he said that, I'm like, you know what? I, I've been trying to explain this for years, and now I have a way to explain it. My other take on this is when somebody ever tells me they want to do a nonprofit, my, my question is why? And I don't even care what they say because I know it's going to be completely irrelevant to why you set up a nonprofit. It's never going to be the right reason to set up a nonprofit. And when they're done with whatever pablum they puke out, I see. So you've, dis you've discussed your business, its goals, um, and the, the the jurisdiction that you're operating in with a tax uh, attorney and a CPA. And the answer is always, well, no. Okay, well, then that's what you should do first. Because yeah. you're talking about the structure of a business. This is a legal operational decision. This is not a motivational decision as to what your motivation to do good shit in the world is. Because if yeah. you want a nonprofit, I got good news for you. As a farmer in your first year, you're going to have one. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. You're going to operate at a loss in your first year anyway. Uh, but when you do have a dirty, filthy, nasty profit, if you think it should all go somewhere else, nothing forbids you from donating it to any cause you want. Yeah, exactly. And at that time, you should go back to your CPA and your attorney have them help you set up a nonprofit and then divest of any nasty, icky profits in your business by donating it to your own nonprofit, to which the eyeballs always light up with, well, why would I do it that way? So that you can control where your charity goes. Because when you write a check to the effing Red Cross for Haiti, it doesn't go to freaking Haiti. That's why. Yeah, exactly. And then, like, there's usually there's a little bit, even in, like, the, the, the completely toasted up liberal mind, there's a little bit of an opening there because I haven't really talked about the fact that you're dumb for doing it this way, because you are, and I'm talking about <laughs> legally dumb, right? And, and your motivation's separate, right? But that's just not, no tax attorney worth his weight in salt would ever structure a small farm enterprise run by a sole proprietor as a nonprofit. Yeah. He'd be disbarred for it because it's such a stupid thing to do. Well, especially in farming, because so much of this work is at the beginning is really grinding it out. It isn't any business, but farming really requires you to get down and dirty, you know? So when you've got this nonprofit structure and you've got all these um, responsibilities that are just kind of spread out amongst a bunch of people and 
they're not nonprofit. One thing people don't really realize, but nonprofits, so I'm sure those that in in them realize this, you don't make shit all for money. Like my, my, my mother has worked for nonprofits for like 30 years and they can, they, they don't pay anything. There's no money in pro, in, in unless you're the non-profit. CEO. Yeah, exactly. Right. You're if you're the CEO dog. of the American Red Cross, you make, I think it's like 4.2 mil a year. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And then that's, that's the, the irony of it all is everybody like lambasts, you know, Target or Walmart for their CEOs having big paychecks and then they're paying all their employees minimum wage, but nonprofits often don't even pay their employees at all. So it's like you, if you don't have that fire under your ass to make you hustle at the beginning and, and, and stick around to make sure that things get done, things don't get done. Um, I mean, and then what, what I tried to do in my book is, you know, try to save people some of the, the pain points for getting started so that, you know, I, I'm showing a lot of um, I, in the book, I get into like how to wash carrots even like I get into a lot of details so that I can save people the pain points and hopefully they can start with a better system so that they can make a profit quicker. But there's always going to be a bit of a struggle when starting, right? And, and that's also the thing that I really see consistently with people in this space is they're just afraid to get started. They think that they need more. It's like, oh, I need more education. I need more yeah. of this. More of this. It's like, dude, just do it. Just get out there and start. Learn as you go. Like start farming now. Buy my book tomorrow. Just go, just do it, just start. And, and that, that, cause once, once you get started, um, things get easier every time. It's that, it's that first step that's always the most difficult to take. You know, I think we have people in, in how old, let's just start out with a, just a straight non-loaded question. How old were you when you, when you started? I was 30. Okay. So this is going to go right to my theory then. Okay. So what I was going to say is my view of this is it's probably that age where people are willing to do this, and here's why. Number one is they've been separated from the university world and the school world and the coddling world long enough that this whole concept that you have to wait for somebody to tell you you're good enough to do something doesn't work yes. for them anymore. So yeah. they get to the point where they're like, well, i got to get some shit done. But you're still young enough where, like, dude, I'm not going to go do what you do. Right. I've got a yeah. successful show. I, I've had multiple businesses I've sold out of. I, I'm in my forties. I, I'm pretty comfortable. I'm yeah. not going to go out and start begging people to let me lease a third of an acre in their backyard. Yeah. Not I don't think it's a great thing to do. It's just I, that I don't You're have past that, that level right. of fire for that type of thing anymore because I've, I've already lived through those years where you mm -hmm. get separated and, and go out and kick ass and do something for yourself. And now you're reaping some level of reward. So it almost has to be people in that kind of donut hole. It does, it, it, well, it doesn't have enough yet to where you're still willing. I'm going to do whatever it takes to freaking get it. And yet you're old enough to where all this brainwashing going into our young people today starts to wear the hell off. Yeah. Oh, totally. I, I mean, I was listening to an interview with between uh, Mark Cuban, is it Mark Cuban, the the owner of the Dallas Cowboys, yep. like a billionaire, and Ty Lopez, and he was he said the exact same thing. He's like, when you're get the best time to start is when you're young and then you don't have debt and you don't you know you're you're in a house with three other guys and you've got nothing to lose. That's yeah. the best time to start. So ha having said that, uh, and, and for me it was kind of the a, a bit of the equilibrium. It was like not having anything to lose at thirty. Um, not having any big responsibilities, but getting old enough where I feel like, okay, it's time to make something happen here. I don't want to be 40 and just twiddling my thumbs and, and just partying every weekend. You know, like I, I need to make something happen. Um, 
but you know you like like he so he that, that's kind of what he was saying is like you just have to be ready to to take a risk and and do it so but the other the other thing i was going to say is that it's I, i've actually been a little bit surprised over the years cuz i've i've done a lot of traveling and talking over the last 4 years and um there's a pretty big demographic of people who are getting into this who are past they're actually your age yeah. and they're past their their career and they're 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 sick of their career. I believe it or not, I get a lot of lawyers huh. who contact me and who want me to consult for them. Uh lawyers or um health workers, not necessarily doctors, but people who are really burnt out. Like they're often people that work in a very institutionalized system. Sure. So any anything within the government has their hands in a lot like law yeah. and the medical industry. They just they're so burnt out and they really want to do something holistic. I get a lot of that too. And I actually seen a, a pretty high success rate of people in that field because at that point, like say they're 45 and they've got two kids um, and they're just like, okay, I want to make this happen. And I'm not ready to go through the six years of trial and error. I want to do it now. And those, those people are, are, are kind of ideal in a way for somebody to work with somebody like me because they're like, hey, you know what? I got a little bit of a budget. I'll pay you for your time if you can just help me crank this out and get it going. And they're, they're really willing to work hard to do it because they're like, I don't want to go through that, you know, those three years trial and error like I had to. Cause like, I, I, I'm the guinea pig, right? I, I've suffered on the people's, on, on people's behalf to say, hey, don't do it this way because I'm telling you, it sucks to do it this way. If you want to learn this faster, do it this way. Follow these steps, and you can you can be on a, a path to success a lot quicker than than even I was. And I, I I'm seeing that, especially with people who don't want to go through that trial and error period. Yeah, you know, and it makes sense too. And so I'm thinking as you're talking about this, like, so I don't think it's really an age thing. It's it's more or less a satisfaction thing. Like, I think even if you're 30, if you're really satisfied with where you are in your life, you're probably not going to go do something radically different. So I, I think yeah. maybe for me, like, if, if I had stayed in corporate America and not blown my heart up by now and, you know, managed to survive at 300 pounds like I was uh, this long, at this point I might have said, screw it, I'm going to go out there and do this type of a thing. But I think that's the whole thing is we all have to find what actually gives us satisfaction and puts enough wealth in our lives. And I think like, so you're talking about this nonprofit thing earlier, and I think that's what people don't understand. Like, wealth is the best thing in the world you can do for your own freedom and liberty and for every cause you care about is like to build wealth in your own life. And that doesn't necessarily mean to be worth $10 million. Though I have no problem with that if you want to be worth $10 billion for all I care. Yeah. But when I say wealth, I mean if you have enough money to do the things you want to do and you don't freak out about the end of the month, right? Like I yeah. can't wait till the first – and, and you live a lifestyle that's the kind of life you want to live, and your general projection forward in life is a little bit better every year, I consider you freaking dramatically wealthy, right? Oh, absolutely. And, and, and if you have all of that, then all this stuff that people say they care about, whether it's growing flowers for orphans or traveling to third world nations and doing missionary work or – whatever it is in a person's head, then you actually can do something about those things. Yes. All you're doing is being miserable, unhappy, and dead-ass broke and bitching about people that are successful. You can't do anything for the things you claim to care about. Well, yeah. So my response to people like that is, like, if you actually gave a shit as much as you said you did, 
then you would go out and do what's necessary to be able to impact that. Yeah, and I, I think there's a lot more to that as well. It, it, like psychologically, is one thing I see that's so prevalent today is this fear. I, I believe it's a fear of being successful, actually. Yeah. But it's really a fear to start. The first thing is it's it's a fear of just um, taking responsibility for themselves. Like the whole like academia today, uh, not not across the board, but a lot, especially on like the really far left stuff that I see, is really like coddling people. And you and I have ranted about this many yeah. times before, but just coddling people, and and we've got this culture of dependence and fragility, and it's like what happened to the wild west, you know? Yeah. Like what, think about the farmers that, that came out west, you know, a hundred years ago. They were tough. They were tough. And we, and then we, we, we had this like, this period where, you know, our parents had that. Maybe not even our parents, maybe our grandparents, depending on how old you are. But then the baby boomers came on board and they created so much wealth and they just coddled all of their children because they wanted their kids to have a better life than they did. But that didn't help them. No. So now we've got this culture of people that are just sissies. So you know, who, I don't want to do anything. Stop you there a second. I, I think the baby boomers get too much of the blame. I think their kids are the assholes, and I'm their kids, by the way, right? Well, me, me too. Like exactly. I grew up in the '70s and '80s. I'm part of Gen X, right? My wife's yeah. a little bit older than me, so she's what you call a tweener. She's clean, the baby boom in the Gen X. And you know, I I'm the kid that grew up riding my bicycle across freaking jumps and near killing myself. And you know, you go home with a busted leg, and your old man goes, "Nah." You'll be all right. I mean, that was like the culture we grew up in, but it was like we also were at the same time we we had to be tough because our parents wouldn't kiss every boo boo or whatever. We were yeah. spoiled materialistically, so every generation goes, "I want my kids to have what I didn't." So we got all the material wealth, if you want to call it that. And I'm I didn't grow up wealthy, and my family wasn't wealthy, but I still, if I compare it to like what my what my old man had when he was a kid. Right. I had yeah. so much. So we had the material wealth and then we went out and most of us in Gen X, we were fortunate. We hit it. Man, we could bitch if we want to. But the truth is, us Gen Xers, we hit that dot com boom at the perfect mid 20s. You know, we were tech savvy. We knew what we were doing. We capitalized on it and we, yeah. we got older and we had kids. And since we had the material, then what was left? And it was like, well, I don't want them to be suffering. I don't want them to hurt, you know. And, and I was always counter to that. My wife always thought I was way too hard on her son. And I'm like, you know what? He's going to grow up and thank me for this shit because he's not going to be a freaking wuss like all the kids he's growing up around. Totally. And I think, I think I'm more talking about millennials, really, because yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in that same – I was born in my 79. My generation did that. There are kids. Yeah. The oh, millennials totally. are not – the, the boomers' kids, they're the Gen Xers and Gen Y's kids. That's right. Yeah, they're the grand they're the grandkids of the uh, of the boomers. Oh, there we go. There's what you can blame the boomers for. Because <laughs> yeah. my dad was the toughest, hardest, meanest old man you ever saw. Boy, you put a grandkid in front of him. This guy turns into freaking what was his name? Uh, not Mister Rogers. Uh, freaking the oh god, friendly giant. No, no, no. The, the Captain Kangaroo man. Oh. That's. <laughs> <laughs> Captain Kangaroo and Mr. Green Jeans, man. It's like, yeah. where was this dude when I was growing up? So, yeah, so we got Gen Xers giving the kids everything they want, and the boomer grandparents, like, 
making their life super soft, like almost like atoning for how tough they were on us. Totally. Screw well, this generation up. Cause I, you know, I talked to this one young guy that was on a project with me that I did with Mark Shepard. And he was, you know, this whole, I'm a white male of privilege stuff. We won't go down that rat hole. Oh God, we don't need to go down that no, rat hole. We don't. But my point to this kid eventually was, listen, you're out here busting your ass in, on an ag project, working as an intern, you know, barely making it by so that you can, in your own words, learn how to function in the real world. What privilege do you think you have? And that's what we've done to this whole generation. They think they have everything, but the most basic things like work ethics and, and I don't want to, I got guys in my audience, dude, that are that age and they bust their ass. So you know, if you're oh, a group or not, abso- right? Ab- absolutely. But the majority of these kids, they have no work ethic. They have no ability to fail and be resilient to it. And, and I am like one of these guys says, let's stop blaming them. They didn't do it. Like, if you have a dog and your dog sucks, it's not the dog's fault, right? You, yeah. You're a crappy dog trainer. Well, my whole generation screwed these kids up. That's the way I see it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I actually come from kind of a bit of both worlds because my parents separated when I was seven. And my, my dad is a hard ass. He's a total <laughs> hard ass. He's never given me a damn thing. And I'm glad he hasn't. But when my parents split up, my mother had custody. And, um, you know... She, she probably shouldn't have because she wasn't as responsible as my dad was at the time. But I was coddled. I was totally coddled until I graduated high school and I wanted to go and study music composition. And my dad is like, hell, if I'm going to give you money to go do that, if you want to go do trades, I'll help you. But if you want to go study music, you're on your own. So I, I actually went, I started a tree, I started tree planting, which is a, you know, pretty Canadian job to do, but you can make a lot of money doing it. And it's a hard ass job because you're out in the bush with bugs and the elements and you're planting trees in gnarly steep ground that's super dangerous and you're getting paid per tree. So what you make is, is what you take. And so that's when I really started to learn the value of hard work. It wasn't until I was at least 20 where I started to figure this stuff out because I was totally coddled. And I was totally entitled when I was younger, but I had a hard dose of reality when I went out in the bush and realized what it took to put myself through school. But then I learned to love it because I, I had a sense of purpose. I was making money. I was making like 500 bucks a day. I was, I, I put myself through college, paid off all my student loans and, and then survived as a musician in Montreal for six years, only working three months of the year because I could go out west go in the bush and tree plant and then go back with all this money. And I was, I was living great. I mean, I was still technically out of the poverty line because the poverty line in North America is quite high compared to everybody else. So I was, you know, I was living on 20 to 35 grand a year and I was living like a king, I felt. So, you know, everybody kind of comes around at their own time, but you need to have a kick in the ass at some point if you're, uh, you know, want to get to that point where you're actually learning to hustle because it, it can be taught. It, you know, I, I, I really, I have some friends who their old man was pushing them their entire lives. And, you know, if your parents stick together, that, that helps too. But, uh, I didn't have that. So I had to learn it in the real world. Well, it also sounds like you got to see, that's the thing. You got your dose in, in, in conjunction with university, right? Instead of like you just going off to school and borrowed money or whatever, you had to work through university. And I think that a lot of, our kids today don't do it that way. 
right? No, well, the credit's so easily available, and the government wants you to be locked into debt. And there's and so many tell you incentives, they can't right? Done. I've had quite a few people from this audience that say, you know, you don't know what it's like today. Um, you can't work yourself through school today. There's no time. And I'm like, no, no, there's a lot of things that have changed, but the number of hours in a day, uh, the number of hours of coursework per semester in college, none of that's really that much different. Uh, well, and ho hopefully, I think that's a good thing personally. I, I think universities should be more expensive personally. If you want to go and study, uh, gender studies or critical theory, um, you know, you should have to pay for that because that has no value in the free market. So, you know, if you, that's, I find that always kind of ironic is like the people that study those things are always calling everybody privileged, but how privileged do you have to be to actually go to, to be able to afford to go to university to study that kind of thing that has no real value to anybody, but that's, a, that's another subject. Well, see, I actually think universities should be a lot less expensive because they should be online and they shouldn't have any of the overhead that they do because... Well, the free market will make that happen. It's it going to. Yeah, we talk about that all the time. Like, the, the, the education system is is cratering toward the abyss of nothingness right now. Oh, all of it. dilapidated. I mean, a hundred years ago, it was a professor and a chalkboard. A hundred years later, it's professor and a whiteboard. Yeah. Like... Whereas, you know, like my online course is next level technology, right? It's fully multimedia. There's videos, there's audio, there's interactive stuff. There's a community. Online education is going to trump the institutions, um, which makes me, you know, a little bit concerned that at some point, potentially, there's going to be a clampdown like the government does in many things. But at the same time, They have a hard time keeping up. With See, my response to that is good luck with that shit because yeah, I, like totally. the genie's out of the bottle now. Yeah, exactly. And, and it amazes me too. Like, so you'll put together a course, and I, what does your course run, cost wise? Oh, it's about a, it's like nine nine, just about a, a thousand bucks. Call it, call it grand. So your course is a grand. People say that's expensive. And wait, okay, wait a minute. I'm going to go to college. I'm going to spend fifteen grand or more a year, and I'm going to get out of that, and I can't do shit. Yeah. I can take your course for a grand, and I literally have a complete business plan. At the end of it, and that's no guarantee of success, but if I actually apply the information, I have the potential to have the ability to earn an income in my first year, to be able to get access to land with, with no real capital, and to be able to establish a business and, and do that within the course and the business establishment all within a year. Oh, yeah. And that's, growth that's from the there to the point where you had employees and, and you just decided you didn't really want to do it that way, but the potential's there. And oh yeah, that's a thousand dollar product using you said leading cutting edge technology, and this archaic methodology of teaching people is sitting there, and people are paying fortunes for it, and like you said, only because they can finance it with that. Oh yeah, and the, you know, and the thing is, the the, the problem with universities today, uh, especially in the ag field, because I do lecture oh, at universities yeah. and stuff like this, is that eighty percent of it's theory, eighty percent of it is some prof who's got a great idea about how agriculture should be, but he's not a farmer. <laughs> and so, um, and not, not to, not to discredit all those people in one fell swoop. That's not what I'm trying to, uh, the point I'm trying to make is that when you don't have to like jump through all the hoops of the bureaucracy that says you must do X, Y, Z to be in this institution, you can get straight to the cream. And you know, that, that's a Pareto's law type thing. You know, 20% of the information will have 80% of the leverage is that's what we do. That, that's what my course is. It's all cream. Like there's no fluff. There's no, um, why you should be an urban farmer and why it's important in food security and food sovereignty and all this stuff. It's like, this is how you do it. 
forget the crap. Just like go to the cream. And so, you know, I, I think that's what, that's an exciting place to be with, with education. The, uh, the challenge is getting people to understand that because there still are people that say, oh, a thousand bucks, but at the same time. Who, who are you accredited by? What employer is going to exactly. like, oh, your hands just going to your face? You're like, this isn't so you can go get a job. Yeah. Right. And I think that's like, that's, that's like the other thing that people need to realize, like, no matter how you want to do that in the future, like, not everybody's going to be an urban farmer. Not everybody's going to be a podcaster, what have you. Uh, not everybody's going to be a duck farmer, but yeah. you better have something that's yours because the, 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 the number of, of jobs from a standpoint of go to someone, get employed, get a paycheck every two weeks, have them take care of all your taxes for you. That number is going to dwindle. While we still have at least some moderate population increase. Oh, absolutely. The, 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 the time has come again for the entrepreneur, I believe, because the job market, and I mean, you know, anybody that's run a business before knows how, how much it sucks to actually employ people. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, as far as the government stuff goes, I mean, what a, what a pain in the ass it is. I don't know what it's like in the U.S., but... Oh, it sucks. Here in Canada, to <laughs> just employ people, the barriers to entry are getting higher and higher every year. And then you got people crying for $15 an hour minimum wage and stuff. Yeah. And, and, and so it's, it's, a, it's a pain in the ass. So hopefully we're going to see, especially in the ag world, more people just starting self-startups, just, you know, uh, self-employed, Maybe a couple running a farm. Um, people are always going to pay into the table and stuff like that. So there's nothing you can really do about that. But you know, to 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 go and get workers' compensation and all this stuff that I have to do, and I I, I do it because I have to. Yeah. But it's not easy. And I'll tell you what, the way the way things are going today, especially the fact that people are, are out there like vocally and they're getting loud, crying for fifteen dollar minimum wage is. If you're going to work for me, you better be like a, a workhorse. Yeah. Because if I have to go through and fill out all the government forms yeah. to hire you yeah. and then take take on that cost and time yeah. and then you want 15 bucks an hour to start, you better be a machine. See, so I, I, unfortunately, I that, that, that cuts out everybody else who just wants to learn. I would, I would love to be able to hire a 14-year-old kid, yeah. pay him eight bucks an hour. Um, Straight. Yeah, and just, and just be like, yeah. show you, show them how to work and teach them something. But, but, but we, now there's this attitude where it's like, I'm entitled to $15 an hour because I need a living wage. It's like, no, you don't. You live with your mom. You don't yeah. need a living wage. You don't need a living wage. You're, 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 you're starting out. You, you don't need, you don't, you don't need a living wage. Yeah. You need, you need like a hundred bucks a week to survive. So I'm going to give you a free education. Yeah. And I'm going to pay you a little bit of money. Yeah, so how, see, that's my that's my two schools of thought there. So like, would I hire a kid for uh, six seven bucks an hour if if my farm was a full time occupation for me? Probably, probably because that means that the reality is I'm going to do at least on some tasks more work to have them do it than just doing it myself. I'm going to actually sacrifice for quite a while in my time to get them up to speed where they're actually helpful. So when you look at that on the other side, if I'm going to hire you as a true employee where, like, I put you to work, give you a week's training, you better get your shit done. Yeah. If you're not worth more than $15 an hour to me, I'm not hiring you anyway. No, no. you right? you got, you got to be worth at least double. wage irrelevant to me. If I'm actually hiring you to be a true employee in today's economy, I'm already paying you more than 15 and you're not getting a job. Yeah, exactly. you you, you got to be, in my opinion, you've got to be at least double the value that I'm paying you, yes. probably triple. 
Yeah. So if I if I'm paying you 15 bucks an hour, you better be producing 45 dollars an hour of value. Well, at least and, it, you're it, not because me 15, right? Oh, so. exactly. And that's the thing that you know a lot of people don't realize. It's like you know I get hundreds of emails a year, people who want to come and work for me, and they don't really understand the value that I'm bringing to them. It's like, look, you're going to come here and I'm going to train you. I'm going to spend all this time with you. And then you're just going to piss off after six months. Like forget sure. it. No yeah. way. You can pay me. You, you can, you can pay me and come on my farm and I'll teach you because that's a better value exchange, you know, than people going to come in and, Oh, I expect this. And this is like, well, I'm sorry, but uh, that's not how it works. Yeah, we've experimented here with like some levels of internship and stuff like that. And my wife and I, I mean, just because I was ragging on nonprofits earlier, I don't have a problem with nonprofits. I have a problem with, just like I don't have a problem with guns. I'm one of the most steadfast proponents of guns there is, but I don't think stupid people with no training should go out and buy a gun, stick it down their pants and start walking around with it, or you end up like Plexico Burrs <laughs> with a bullet in your leg in a dancing club and arrested for shooting yourself, right? So <laughs> so it's not that I have a problem with nonprofits. I have a problem with the improper utilization of the, the corporate structure that is a nonprofit. So we've tried to look at how we can eventually move into that piece for a program to help train veterans to get their your shit together and develop their own businesses in this space. Yeah, and we're kind of noodling that right now. And our thought is, you know, we could start small. The hell, and that's the thing—you don't need the nonprofit in the beginning because there's not enough money to matter. Yeah, we have these two beautiful rooms upstairs, and instead of giving a person room and board and a stipend, right? What we can do is basically you can rent this for stupid cheap. Yeah, and then you also have to do X numbers of hours of work a week, or you get thrown the hell out. And you need to go find yourself a part-time job unless. You have a viable and operational revenue model that you institute here. You can do either one of those things, but you got to do one of them. And you, yeah. if you don't have the revenue model down yet, then you go get your ass a part-time job until such time as you get this ramped up, and we'll help you do it and eventually transition out. And then our thought is we have all this land around us. We can buy land. We can put it in these small houses. And by that point, if we prove out that model, then it would be stupid not to do that with a nonprofit structure. It, sure. Yeah. Oh, totally. I mean, it's, but it's, you got to work for it because this whole concept of, well, you know, I'll come work. And what we've learned is the people that do that generally don't actually want to work. No, they, they don't want. I know. I, I don't do that anymore. If not the way I've seen work when I say it. I mean, they might think they're working. I think oh, yeah. If you gave them a lie detector test and you work hard, they'd say yes and they'd pass. Oh, sure. But they just sure. don't understand what that means. No, they don't. They don't. And I, I don't I don't do that any longer because I get a ton of people that email me and say, Hey, can I, can I come and work for you for free for two weeks? And you just show me a bunch of stuff. It's like, no, no, no way. Where, where's the value for me? Because, because you're, you're, you're just a liability to me. I got to come here and then I got to stop, um, my operations to show you everything. It's like, there's no value in that. It's like, you can pay me $2,000 yeah. and you can yeah. come and work for me for two weeks. Sure. Yeah. Um, cause I, I need to cover myself when I'm not on the farm. Cause when I'm on the farm, I'm, I'm making, you know, I'm bringing $200 an hour in value or more because I'm not fucking around. I'm just going for it. Yeah. So, uh, but, but people don't understand that. And so I, I think there's a lot of value in this. The, I, I've been experimenting with this idea myself with Joel Salatin's fiefdoms idea. Um, because I don't necessarily want to be a farmer that's managing a hundred people. No. But, what about if I was, cause I have access to hundreds of acres of land for people that make offers to me is what if I put people through a program 
on my farm, train them, and then find them land, and then they they farm that land, take responsibility for it, and they aggregate their product through my market streams. Yeah. I like that idea. Um, I it's just I, I'm trying to find better ways to just have people give me an invoice because yeah. having employees is is tough. I mean, I've got a great guy who works for me now who's incredible. Um, but they're, they're hard to find. You know, I get, I get a lot of people that are passionate and they're knowledgeable, but when it comes down to just like, can you build this for me? Can you do this without me monitoring you? It's hard to find because a lot of people yeah. don't have the practical skills like in carpentry or plumbing or electrical or just knowing how to dig a ditch real quick. You know, yeah. a, lot, a lot of people don't know that stuff. Well, here's an example, right, of, like, people that mean well, but, like, you're not going to do what you think you're going to do. And if the guy that sent me this email is listening, don't be offended that I'm bringing up your little story because I'm just going to tell it the way it went down, and it, it's not about you. It's just about the way that people think getting in. So I get this email from a guy, Curtis, and he says, I want to get some ducks and start selling duck eggs the way that you do. I think we can make enough money to pay our mortgage every month. And he's somewhere in California, right? He tells me all these demographics about this basically upper level yuppie area. So he's going to have, he's, I have no doubt he's going to have a market for his product and he's going to sell as many as he can produce because that's what we do here. And it's a very niche market. And once you get a customer, they'll drive an hour every two weeks to buy four dozen eggs from you. So yeah. absolutely, you can move them. But the number he throws out is 40 ducks, right? So I'm like, I just break down the numbers, basic numbers breaking down, you know, 70% efficiency during your peak laying season. You know, you're looking at 30 eggs, and it, it comes out to basically you can make 2 to $3 a dozen profit on your eggs. And that means basically what this guy could make is about 100 dozen a month, 2 to $300. It's not yeah. bad side money. It's not a lot of work to manage a small duck flock like that. It really isn't. It's a little bit of marketing to move that amount of product. But the concept that you start out with the fact that you think you're going to make your mortgage payment with this. Oh, God. And you haven't basically run, okay, a duck doesn't just make eggs. It has to be fed. It has to be watered. Because when I put that $200 or $300 profit on there, I'm not even taking into account as labor because it's self-applied labor and it's so minimal and it's kind of a hobby and you're not scaling it up to where you're paying somebody to do it. So you can let that float. But your your hard costs of feed and and, and 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 you know mineral supplements and stuff like that, that's real money. Mm-hmm. And and you have to at least if you're going to be in a business, let's run that. I had it with one of our interns at Elijah Spring Farm. Same thing with chickens. They're going to hatch chickens and sell chicken eggs, and they're going to make you know this profit center out of it. And when I ran the numbers, I'm like, you at best are going to make five hundred dollars profit a week with this. Now that's also not a bad starting point, but you could tell the exuberance was – and, like, this is if you hit a home run. This is if you do everything right. You don't kill any birds. You don't screw anything up. You, you get everything nailed down perfect, and you sell all your product. So mm-hmm. the exuberance is there as though they're going to be knocking down two grand a week because no one's actually taking the time to just say, well, how many eggs come out of a chicken's ass a, a month? How many chicken's asses do I have? What does it cost to support <laughs> those chicken asses? And how much time do I have to put in? And and I don't think people want to do that because like it gets in the way of the dream. Yeah, that's what I totally. think it really is. Like there, like I want to be motivated enough to do this, so I don't want to demotivate myself with reality. Where I would say, like to me, that's totally opposite. So like what you just figured out is you can make two grand a month with chickens, right? Yeah. So what that means is you need to make that two grand, but you need to already be thinking about if that's the way you want to do it. How do you expand that market? How do you use that product to create a market you can sell other product into? Because if you're only thinking that, my fear is 
Six months into it, when you finally get the birds to pay off their food debt, right? Because they're they're like yeah. slaves for the first six months. They don't do crap, right? And you yeah. finally get there, and you start realizing you're busting your ass, and you're working 80 hours a week to make two grand a month, and that's not even minimum wage. Now you're demotivated instead of saying, you know what? I did that shit. Yeah. Now that I've done that, now what can I turn that into? And you got to be a realist going in, or you're never going to get there. Totally. Totally. Yeah. So how do you tell people to get started with what you do? Because you say just go do it, but well, I, I, you, you know, it's good to source some high grade. In, I, I'm, I'm super into just high grade information. I think I, I, I was really fortunate when I started because I surrounded. I heard that saying: um, surround yourself with the people that you want to be like, or the the five closest people to you, or you're the sum of the five closest people to you. Mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 um. So, found, looked for, searched um, mentors when I first started. And that allowed me to get a, a leg up pretty quickly. And so I paid people for their time. I, I, I uh, went in and did farm tours and um, consulted with people and and found a kind of batch of mentors of people that believed in me and, and liked my energy and liked where I was going. And they weren't all necessarily farmers either, but I really went to the the cream. I went to the high grade information and there was no, my book wasn't out then obviously. And my course wasn't. So I was going on stuff that was out there like Elliot Coleman's book. Um, spin farming was a, some of the stuff that I was into earlier on. And I, I used that and I, you know, just found the niche of what I, what I wanted to do and just trying to hunker down on that specialization. And so I think the best thing people can do is really identify what it is they want to do exactly. And so if they're talking about urban farming, it's like, okay, how much land do you want to farm? What crops do you want to grow? What markets do you want to sell to? There's so much preliminary market research you can do before you even start farming. And that's really important. And uh, farmer's markets, for example, are an amazing wealth of knowledge. There's so much uh, knowledge capital there because of all the farmers even just by walking through a farmer's market, you can tell a lot. If it's a, if it's a farmer's market that is selling local stuff, you can go through there and you can see what's in season immediately. There's so much information built into that. And so when I started, I did a lot of that. I would just go around to – I was at the farmer's market shopping every Saturday and Wednesday, and I was always looking at prices in grocery stores, figuring out, okay, where's the niche? Uh, what, what, what kind of thing can I cater to that isn't totally saturated? And then I customized my farm that way. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. What are some of the ways that people, when they do get started, can get into a profit relatively quickly? Cause you, you know, like I said, there's no, there's no, uh, participation trophies here. Yeah, and, exactly. And there's going to be a point between where you start and where you actually make a dollar. And totally. you got to survive that. So the, the shorter that duration and the less cost during it, the more likely you are to come out the other side. Yeah. The, the one thing that I say is focus on the tasks that pay. So, the, the, um, the task, there's many things to do on a farm, right? There's, there's washing totes, there's cleaning vegetables, there's, um, moving compost piles, there's making beds, whatever, hundreds of different things you can do. But there's three things that really have the highest outcome. And that is, and, and these are measurable outcomes. And this is one thing that I think is very important is to measure, uh, you can't manage what you don't measure. So really measure the things that are, are, that bring profit to the farm, and that's planting, harvesting, and marketing. Those things have a measurable outcome. 
so what I, what I do, and I, I really get into this in the book and even in more detail in our course is I've created a lot of passive systems, not entirely passive, but automated and, um, you know, DIY infrastructure that allows things to happen quickly. And so things like weeds aren't even an issue for us. Uh, that I don't have to do. So I'm, the, the, the tasks we're doing the most of are planting, harvesting, and marketing. Those things have a measurable outcome and they bring revenue. Whereas flipping compost piles doesn't. Pulling weeds doesn't. So, you know, on, a, on an annual-based vegetable farm, if you're farming organically, weeds are a major thing. And I see so many farmers that spend half their day pulling weeds, especially in the, in the main, in the, in the height of the season. And so, you know, there's all kinds of strategies you can use. The, the, the one that I'm really into is a stale seedbed technique where you're preparing your beds and, and we do this through a no-till system. So it is, we're actually regenerating soil and building soil in this, in this process, but we're not rototilling any longer in our bed prep. We'll rototill to prepare a plot, but once our beds are set, they're fixed. And so we're using a very shallow uh, tilling machine called a tilter that only tills the top half inch of the soil prepping it, put using tarps and using a, a flame weeder to let weeds germinate, then go in and flame them and then, and then plant there. So when we're, we're, we don't spend any time weeding in our beds, like zero. The only time we're weeding on our farm is maybe a stirrup hoe up and down the walkways once a month. But the allocation of time spent to weeding is so small on our farm that we're just focusing on harvesting and planting and marketing. So that's, that's where our leverage is going. And so for people starting, you know, really look at that. Look at what is the most effective way to get something done. And if it's something that doesn't have a measurable outcome, minimize it or eliminate it or find a way to streamline it so that perhaps you're stacking that task with something else. So you're getting two things done at once or you're just getting rid of it altogether. And so that's, that's what we've done with weeding. And that, that's how, you know, I can work less than 40 hours a week on a really profitable farm and a third of an acre and make money. It's because we don't spend any time on all those other tasks or very little time. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's an employee versus entrepreneur mindset right there as well. So, like, it, it amazed me when I had several companies I was running at the same time in an office environment when you actually provided some oversight, especially when people didn't know it was being done, how much time you were paying people for that were things like checking up with their friends on Facebook and things like that. Oh God, yeah. And, 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 you know, then you confront somebody and we had a recruiting business. So they'd say, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm using contacts to find people for placement at these jobs. Really? Who for what job? And if you ask <laughs> that question, you don't even need to see the answer. All you need to see is the reaction. Oh, yeah. Because as soon as they look down to think, that means you don't have the answer, which means you're full of crap. Then you pull phone records. Okay, you know, you, your job mainly is to call prospective employers and employees uh, and put them together, and you work 40 hours a week, and you were on the phone for four hours last week. So, therefore, you know, I mean, it doesn't take a genius to figure out 36 hours you weren't. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that type of thing can only exist because unless I get fired on Friday, I'm going to get a paycheck. Yeah. All right? I'm going to get a paycheck. I've got my health insurance covered, et cetera, whatever. And even if it's not as much money as I think I should get, I can go out to the bar Friday night or whatever, and I know it's going to be all right. Exactly. The minute you take away that safety net, then you're like, you know, I, I really don't have time to 
to, to Jack with Facebook today because I'm not going to make any money doing that. Yeah, exactly. You do figure out like, okay, if I'm going to do Facebook, then I got to figure out how to do this. So I'm building a following, building some marketing collateral, actually sharing information with people and getting something in return for it. Yeah, stacking some functions in there. Yeah, right. And it has to like be bolted into your life. It can't be, well, what I'm going to do since the boss isn't looking is I'm going to slack off on Facebook for like an hour. Yeah. And then yeah. go to lunch. Take a little bit of extra time for lunch. Say I'm being ragged on if I don't get back in time and get ragged on about it. And then I'm going to like figure something out how to do a little bit of work today. So it looks like I did something and then <laughs> screw off from three to four thirty and then at four thirty slip out early. You can't do that. Well, you can. In fact, I think that's why a lot of businesses fail. That becomes dramatically easy to do at first. And, and I don't know how I, how you feel about this, but this is why I feel that people that say, well, I'm going to do is I'm going to make a clean break from employment. I'm going to save up some money, and then I'm going to create a company, and they even do it right. They don't do a nonprofit, right? And I'm going to put, I'm going to capitalize my company, and I'm going to pay myself a salary for the first six months. I think, in spite of how good that sounds, without a dramatic amount of discipline, those people are more likely to fail than the person that just says, "I don't have a clue what I'm doing, but I got to make it work," because they're way too comfortable. And yeah, really, exactly. Just forget that it's even their money, right? They don't even realize like that's your money you put in there. Yeah, yeah, I, I feel the same way. I think I think there's a lot of value in being uncomfortable and being in a in sort of a, a make or break situation. It, that's that's what I set myself up to do. At the same time, I didn't have a mortgage and kids and things where I had a big risk. Sure. I um, but I, I was ready to risk it all. I was ready to completely fail. And and one thing that I think is really important to do as an entrepreneur is to really visualize what success looks like, but also visualize what absolute failure looks like. Yeah. And if you're not ready to accept what failure looks like, then you might be in for a pretty scary dose of reality. Because the problem is, too, is people people put so much weight in their idea. They're like, okay, this is the idea. This is going to be the thing that's going to make me a million bucks or whatever. And it doesn't work. And then they're so discouraged. And then, and then they throw everybody else on the bus and they say, oh, this sucks. This thing doesn't work. Yada, yada, yada. And, um, so they don't, because they didn't visualize it where like when I started, I, I totally visualized, okay, success for me in this first year is if I can make 20 grand and I have at least enough capital to get me through the winter and get me started up the next season, that's success. And I, I exceeded that goal actually. But I also had on the other end of it, failure. What does that look like? Okay. That means that I finished the season without any profit. There's no money. Worst case scenario is I got to go get a job. And that could have been washing dishes. I didn't care. Yeah. I was like, whatever, whatever that is, I'm ready for it. And, you know, there was lots of failures in that first season. But you can't that, let those little bumps in the road knock you down. Because those, things, those little bumps in the road actually make you stronger. And I don't know if you've read the book Anti-Fragile by uh, Nassim Taleb, but it's, it's, it's incredible. I'm, I'm, it's a really long book. I'm no, I haven't read that one. still reading it. But his whole concept is that... Um, you know, there's the term resilience, which means things can weather a storm. They can, they can, they can survive shocks. But he's created this term anti-fragile and that things in nature, businesses and people that, that take small little hits and they have a bumpy road and there's up and down, they actually become stronger. It's up, it's like that old cliche, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And I think that's, that's important. If you don't, if you don't experience those little shocks, and those little surprises every now and then, you're going to get too comfortable. 
Yeah. And then, and then when a big one comes along, you're not going to know what the hell is. Yeah. There's a lot of truth there, dude. I mean, like I grew up to the point where like in my mid teens, my parents decided to get divorced, but not leave the house because whoever left first was likely to lose it or some crazy shit. Both their lawyers told them. So at 16, I moved out on my own and I rented a, a, basically an attic over like this, like row house in, in, in Pottsville for like 150 bucks a month. So you can imagine even in the eighties at that price, what kind of place this was. And so like when I got into my twenties, after I got out of the army and started looking for jobs and like, I would get a job for a while and it sucked and I would lose it because I wouldn't, you know, basically tolerate the the work environment i'd be looking for something else like that didn't even like register is a problem you know and it's i think the more comfortable we get the less fearless we are and that's why it's good to to be fearless and you know when you're talking about this non-fragility type thing like what it makes me think of we were talking about like our grandparents generation and all like my grandparents were the world war ii generation Mm -hmm. and and we've always called them the greatest generation or whatever and i've said on the show i don't know that that's true because you were talking about like the people that went west Right. When I think back, like to out of all America's generations, it's like that pioneer go west generation. And I don't mean the guy that got on a train after they built the railroad and went to San Francisco. I mean the guy that like I don't know if you know like the story of like how these guys did this back then, but you know you'd go get a job somewhere, you'd kill yourself, you'd you'd make as much money as you could. Your everybody in the family would get a job. You'd build some shack on the edge of town. And you'd save up to where you could buy your wagon, your supplies and everything to go west and, and claim some land somewhere and be, you know, a sooner and go to Oklahoma when they opened it up or whatever. And that shack would be pretty much worthless except the nails. And what these people would do is set their freaking house on fire because nobody wanted to buy it. Yeah. Dig the nails out of the ashes, pack oh. them up in a sack so that they had the nails when they went west. And I'm like, we suck. We, I mean, I cleared an acre of ground in Arkansas with a chainsaw and a, tra- a little tractor, and I'm like, these guys did this shit with a mule and like two guys with like a freaking a buck saw and a rip saw. Oh you know, yeah. Like, and I'm like, this is hard. Oh and yeah. We have no idea what hard is. We bitch about stuff that these people would literally just like a, an 11 year old from like 1860 on the plains would just kick a 40 year old man's ass today. Oh, totally. For bitching. Like, not even going to tolerate it. Just smack you down. Because we've lost that. And I think we need to re-engage in that. And I think that this is what what attracts me to ag. Like, I've always said, if you're a great coder, do coding, right? Do whatever works for you as an entrepreneur. But to me, like, ag actually, even if it's a part-time thing that goes with something else, it puts us back in touch with the reality of what we are as human beings it connects us to the land. And I don't mean that in some purple breather, hippie, you know, meditative way. I mean in a real, honest-to-God way. You feel your muscles. You know what you are. And you know what you're capable of. And you know what your real limits are instead of these self-imposed bullshit limits we put on ourselves. Because eventually you say, I'm tired of these plants dying or I'm tired of not making it. So you push yourself beyond that that self-imposed limit. Just like a oh, runner yeah. does, you know? Totally. And, and that's, yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. I, I, I still love farming like right now we're, we're finishing up this really badass passive solar greenhouse in my backyard and i'm more excited about that than my book to be honest with you like i i just love this stuff and i and i've i've dreamt about it for so long i love the idea of being able to grow your own food and that connectivity to to nature like I, yeah i'm definitely with you like i'm not really in it in the like the sort of esoteric spiritual sense but just in the 
raw human uh, aspect to it is being so connected and and feeling the feeling the elements push you. Like right now, it's winter here. Like we're we're below freezing. Yeah, I can't it, about my winter. I mean, yeah, it, it's <laughs> it's cold here right now. And something about that, is, yeah, it was I really value, buddy. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you know, Canadians are tough, man. Like yeah. to 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 live in this kind of weather is isn't easy. And yeah. you know, I, I I I revel in it. I'm like I love being out there in the elements and and pushing it because it really does make me feel stronger. I feel like I. I'm mentally stabilizing. I'm getting physically stronger. And at the end of the day, it's the people, man. And like, that's the thing as business people and farmers, uh, we're all in the business of people. And we're you all, know, I think the there's something with extremes, now. extremes there, dude. Like, so like, if you look at like the centers of population with like what I would call the weaker people, they're generally like the perfect places climate wise. Totally. It's like if I come up there in February, I'm gonna be like, screw this, I'm going home. But if you come here and work on my place in August, oh yeah, I right, know between the that. fire ants and the 112 degree days, right? Oh yeah, you're, you're gonna be like, I'm going back to, I'm going back to, to Canada, man. I don't want, I don't want anything to do with this. So if you live in a place with any extreme, I think it toughens you up. Oh, absolutely. It might not be toughened to the opposite extreme, but it's like when you live in a place where like the weather's perfect all the time, like. I don't want to pick anybody that lives there and say everybody that lives there the worst, but I think it's easier to fall into. Well, like, and maybe yeah. it's challenges, period. Like, you're not being challenged. Like, if nothing else, if you live in British Columbia, the weather's going to challenge you sooner or later. Oh, yeah. And it, it, it's, it's actually a really interesting thing to think about it because I was just down in Mexico for two weeks. And um, when you go to a really warm place, it's interesting culturally what you experience. Like, I find a similar thing in Hawaii is, like, the land, it's just abundant. Like the jungle just covers yeah. everything. There, like you, there's fruit growing. There's animals. There's so much abundance. When you are in the land of abundance, you don't really have to have that hustle. And it's, you know, I don't know if you've read, uh, I think it's Jared Diamond, the, the, that book, Guns, Germs, and Steel, about how the reason why Western Europeans rule the world, it's because they, it was a combination of a lot of things, but the thing is the work ethic that they had in those cold climates did not exist, not, right? Because because in in a cold climate you have to build a surplus, right? You've got to, and this is this is this goes back. This is farming, right? This is agriculture. This is ag- agriculture has shaped civilization, but you know you've got these cultures in this cold climate where you had six months to hustle because you got to get ready because it's going to be damn cold. And unless you've got foodstuffs, you're going to starve and you're going to freeze. So you got to have your firewood, you got to have your food, you got to have all these things. And so yeah. that's, that's kind of like living on the edge, right? That's the Dude, edge. Think that's about this, right? So, you know? so if you look at the whole era of European expansion, like the time that all happened, it was all from the 15 through the late 1700s. You know what was going on in, 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 in northern North America and in Western Europe during that period? The little freaking ice age. Like as cold as it is now is oh, yeah. nothing compared to what it was then. Oh yeah, it it was brutally cold then. I even see this like in my lifetime, man. Like um it was 20 years ago when I was a kid growing up in this town in Kelowna, it was cold. We had like a real Canadian winter which is similar to what you get out in the east on the east side of the country where it's minus 20 Celsius or minus 40. We used to have that here. We don't have that now. 
Um, I remember as a kid, I grew up for my first part of my childhood in Jacksonville, Florida, right? This is like USDA zone nine. People grew out citrus there. I yeah. remember in the, the 70s and 80s walking to like the bus stop with my hands in my pockets, turn around walking backwards because the wind was so cold. Yeah. And, and like it just doesn't get that cold. And that was that we had in, in the States and it, up into Canada that 70s through mid 80s period. We had a cooling period. Oh, big time. And it was, I think a lot of our young people today don't, and I'm not, I'm not the old man going, I used to walk to school uphill both ways or whatever, <laughs> not yet anyway. But yeah. I just don't think they've actually experienced like cold like that. And maybe they wouldn't be so worried about a little bit of warming if they did. Yeah, exactly. I, very <laughs> frankly, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about the warming, especially up here in Canada. But <laughs> I mean, because it, it is, it, it, it is get It's just kind of like, the, the, it's becoming more spring-like for longer. It's, yeah. The summers are becoming uh, a little bit more extreme, but the winters are too. So, but it's just it, overall, it, it is definitely warmer for us up here. But you know, I I still like it. I it's it's nice to go to warm places for a while. But right now, I'm loving it because I've got this badass greenhouse that's like yeah 70 fahrenheit and it's sunny and it's freezing outside it's 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 a cool thing it's a trip you know like yeah it is to go in there and work in that environment it's it's pretty it's pretty fun yeah we're looking at uh trying to maybe next year out my my west acre put in uh one of the high tunnels for that very reason uh and for us we can flip that around and use shade to actually grow in our summers because people don't realize like the weird thing about my climate, people think it's easy because it's the south. Well, I'm so no, it's not. so much. I'm, I'm I'm I've got like a, more of a continental climate because we're far from the coast, and so I'll get days here that are near zero, uh, not a lot of them, but a, enough to kill everything dead. Yeah, yeah. And then I'll get days that are 115 in the summer. Oh yeah. I get monsoon rains in the spring and fall. I get five months of drought. Yeah. Uh, it's it's crazy. So if we can take and reduce the evaporation, provide more shade. And do that in our summers when actually it would be if you if you could get sixty percent shade and moisture it would be great here in August right oh for sure for sure green, green greenhouses are critical to agriculture because the thing is that people you know especially in the permaculture space a lot of people are like you know agriculture should just be this nature thing it's like man agriculture doesn't exist in nature. Agriculture is a man-made construct. Yeah. It doesn't exist. It is the manipulation of nature to control it to do the things that we want. Nature's a bitch, man. Yeah. Nature is a cold bitch and and uh she doesn't play favorites, right? So you, we what we're doing Well, nature favors the strong, right? So whatever plant's strongest in that particular biome is going to survive. And if you haven't noticed, like most of the stuff we like to eat doesn't qualify. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, it's it's interesting too. The more you get into like different bioregions, but like you know, down in Mexico, you think, oh, it's this is tropical. You can grow everything. You can't grow shit down there. <laughs> like it is hard. Yeah, and it's because you got nematodes in the soil. You've yeah. got pests that never go away. Never like, die. Every, every time I go back, I go down to the tropics. I'm I'm just like totally stunned at the beauty and and the lifestyle but then i then i go oh man i love living in canada oh my god we got we got a it's we got a winter growing right if you're growing soil. tropical fruits you can grow the shit out of tropical fruits sure, tropics because sure. they're adapted to it you want to grow lettuce good luck right oh yeah i mean and you, you can but it's it's, it's hard a whole new bunch of challenges right it's hard but, so like here 
we had about, oh God, it's almost 10 years now and it's still a problem. A whole bunch of tomatoes that came in through like all the box stores. They, and I, I'm not slandering the name. It just happened to be like Bonnie's. That's like the big one that they came in through. We had a whole shitload of tomatoes come in that had blight. Well, if you get blight in New Jersey, right? Okay, fine. You got blight that year. So then the temperature goes down to like freaking 20 below for at least a couple of days. Everything in the soil freezes, and, the, and yeah. the blight lives in the first couple inches of the soil. So the soil freezes solid, so all the blight dies. So unless you reintroduce it, no problem. Here, it's just hung on. Because even, well, yeah. even if it, 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 like we get a good couple solid freeze days, there's always little pockets where it's got microclimates, it's warm enough, it survives, and it, it just comes back, and it comes back, and it comes back. And you can say whatever you want, like healthy soil doesn't do that. Yeah. yeah, to a degree. That's not yeah, that's to not a degree, but it's still it's here, right? Oh and yeah. We, so we have to think. Okay, that's why I went to like growing tomatillos because they're immune to it, right? So, like, you have to adapt what you're growing to your climate or to your methodology, you know. Totally. And that's and yeah, that well, the, adapting to all of that is key. I mean, really, annual vegetable-based agriculture is a northern, like Western European thing, right? That, that this was not happening in Africa in the way like they when the when the Europeans went down to Africa and they were close to the equator everything they did failed because none of it works down there you know from when I when I check out farms in the tropics and places like this it's all perennial based the good ones because you can't you can't do the same type of stuff so you got to customize um, what you're doing to, for, for, for where you are. I mean, this is actually one, one of the biggest, this, in, in urban agriculture, there's such an obsession with aquaponics. I find oh. it hilarious. Um, cause it, I just find it so gimmicky in some ways. But in other ways, I think its greatest application is in the tropics, actually. Because down in Mexico and, and, uh, Central America, you can't really grow in the soil a lot of times because there's so many bugs. But with aquaponics, you can have it out of the soil and, and again, you are manipulating nature. Aquaponics is far from natural. People think it's a closed loop system. It is far from that. Um, but but it works, right? In those it works. Those I'm not put it down, but it's it ain't for everybody. and It ain't for every place. I mean, that's that's the best way I can put it. And the purist that says like this is what aquaponics is and this is what makes sense. Like if you want production with aquatics, you want aquaculture. Right, the most productive, and by the way, there, most systems like this are in the tropics, the subtropics. But the most productive systems known to man are aquacultural systems, not aquaponic systems. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, the, the the level of productivity these systems can produce is massive, and it's partially because even when you bring in annuals like rice, well, we're using the flows of water to choke out the weeds that the rice can survive, and it's this adaptation. So whether it's a greenhouse, whether it's a rice paddy, you know, what, no matter what it is, we are manipulating things. And I think like when people say agriculture is supposed to be natural, well, agriculture actually means the culture of field. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So when you want natural, you want horticulture. That's the culture yeah. of plants. So exactly. we can do all kinds of stuff like that, but not at a production level that is going to create an income. That's right. Or, or all the creature comforts that we enjoy. Agriculture is the sole reason for civilization. We wouldn't have specialization, uh, if it weren't for agriculture because agriculture allowed other people to specialize in other things, whether they be arts, literature, welding, framing, whatever it is. 
agriculture is the reason for all of that. And we all, we all owe farmers. We owe them everything because they have built the world around us or they have at least allowed the world to be built around us by taking care of the food production. Cause in nature, it's tough. It's a tough gig. You gotta, you know, out every day to hunt or whatever it is. I mean, a lot of people will talk about the horticultural society and how this is like this great utopia. I don't know. I, I don't, I don't know if I'm ready to live in a tribe personally myself. I think it's like, you know, everything fits the individual based on the individual's wants, needs, desires, and space available. Like, you know, a lot of people actually prefer to live in somewhat urbanized areas where there's nightclubs and stuff like that. You're not going to be happy living in the middle of the Appalachian Mountains where I grew up as a teenager. Trust me, you don't want to go there. If you, you know, if you could live every day of your life on deer, meat, and squirrel, which I could... (laughs) <laughs> You'd be pretty happy there, you know. Yeah, if yeah. the government didn't screw that place up, I'd probably still be there. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. And I think like we all have to make our own decisions about where we fit in. But if you're going to be profitable in some sort of a system like that, then you need a hundred acres and most of your profit. Let's be honest, it's going to be like you know Airbnb type stuff or tourism or, or, or eco. That's the reality of it. And there That's ain't the and there ain't nothing wrong with that, but. Even if you're going to go with the permaculture model, key line develops like Mark Shepard style, you need acreage, and you can't do it with your model. Because if I'm leasing land, I'm not planting freaking trees. Oh, right? for sure. I can't you, you need to. cash flow. You need cash flow. And I, I think there's a lot of marriage that can happen there. I think uh, my farming methods could work very well with cash flowing. Sure. Some of these pasture, maybe uh, perennial-based systems and i i I think even mark got it got into that a little bit yeah i Um, think so i think he's a little bit too stuck on the big scale because that's his world and we all get stuck on our world but like i think he gets that and i think that if you look at what he did it's actually he did exactly what you did only only on a large scale because the way he financed the operations of new forest farm for the first 10 years was alley cropping things like asparagus and squash. He said he picked enough zucchini that if anybody ever gets near him with a zucchini again, he's going to punch him in the head. Right? <laughs> so, I mean, that's exactly what he did is he used annuals for the cash flow in the interim until the livestock and the, and the, and the arboreal systems come into the point where they can actually generate enough income to make the farm run, so to speak. But, you know, even with that, you know, he's still pulling a subsoiler through. He's still root pruning. There's still a control being done so that you can put in a 100-acre system and harvest chestnuts with mechanized equipment. You need you need that stuff. Right. I, mean, so I don't because I have three acres, and I just want a place with my wife, and I can walk around and pick food. But yeah. we're not trying to make a living on apples. And yeah, if you exactly. are, you have to... You have to go to scale or it's not going to happen. Oh, for sure. There's a lot of scaling up that needs to be done. And, but really, we just need more farmers. Yeah. Because the, 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 the average age of a farmer is 60 years old. Less than 2% of people know how to farm anymore. Farm, farm, farmers are dying. They're disappearing. Um, a lot of people like to get into the doomsday stuff with that. I actually see it as a tremendous opportunity because as all of these old school guys die off, yes, there's some knowledge that's being lost. For sure. And that's, that's a bad thing. At the same time, a lot of barriers are being lost too, because a lot of old habits are going to die off as well. Yeah. And yeah. then new, new people are going to come in and revamp the industry. Hopefully the government doesn't get in the way too much. Um, they haven't with vegetables yet. So, no. you know, there's still a lot of innovation that's happening. Like 
agriculture, like sustainable ag, regenerative ag, urban ag is a wild west right now. There's so much innovation happening. It's a very exciting time to get into it. And it's, it's a, it's a, it's a good opportunity to get in now too, because the masses haven't got in yet. Um, the mainstream media still isn't really talking about the, the, that food issue, the fact that there's so many old farmers and not enough people replacing them. That's not really mainstream. It's in some, you know, well-known documentaries and books and whatnot, but it's not a real issue. People are still talking more about the NASDAQ and the Dow Jones before they are the food. So it's still a good opportunity because there's, it's wide open. There's, there's so much space in this, in this, um, in this space for people to come in and try new things. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you do some workshops too as well, dude. Yeah, totally. I, I'm going to be on the road for Jan, all of January, February and half of March. I'm going to be doing a series of workshops with Diego Futur, uh, from permaculture voices down in California. We've got about three weeks of stuff down there all over like Northern to Southern California. Then I'm on the road. I'm in New Zealand for a month. I've got about 20 dates, speaking dates down there, the whole country. And then I've got a few dates in Australia. And then I'm back into um, California for Permaculture Voices 3, and I'll be down there with you drinking beers. Oh, yeah, that's right. i gotta, I got to start really thinking about that. I haven't even started working on my presentations or anything for that yet. <laughs> <laughs> like, I think I owe Diego an interview to help him promote it. Uh, oh, yeah, there you go. It's just, you know, it's weird to me. I was just saying this, this yesterday that, okay, you know, we're, we've now entered the last month of the year. And, and part of me, like, I'm really trying to be in the Christmas spirit and all, cause I love the holidays and we had Thanksgiving to family and all, but part of me is just like, it's not winter yet. It's, I, you know, and I guess if I lived up north still, I would feel differently, but, you know, the yeah. sun's out right now. It's crystal blue skies. It doesn't feel, it doesn't feel like the year's over. And it doesn't yeah. feel like, you know, hey, March and, and PV3 is right around the corner. It doesn't yeah. feel like that at all. Oh, it's, yeah, it's crazy. And I'm just thinking, when you say that, I'm like, oh crap, I got, I got so much irrigation to get in. I got so much planning to do. I got all, I got this new quail system to build. And I'm just thinking, I have to get this shit done by spring. Oh yeah. Oh, I I'm the same to. way. I got, I'm hustling right now. I mean, I've been on vacation for three weeks. Like I was at a hot springs uh, up in BC here, and then I was down in Mexico for two weeks. So I've had my rest. I'm, I'm I'm totally stoked to be back, just charging it on the farm right now, making this greenhouse operational, and then I'm on the road for. See, my vacation, two and a half dude, has always been like I I usually take off from the 23rd, and then I come back to work on the 2nd of January. I just take that off. Nice. And like I'm like I'm gonna work that whole time, even though I'm not gonna be on the air. I'm gonna be working that whole time this year because. I'm actually going to be able to get things done without having to worry about getting a show up or what have you, you know, and it's, 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 but I think I'll enjoy doing it, but it's like, yeah. I, I try to give that time as much as I can to my family, but I'm thinking like, you know, I, I talked about the seasonal changes here. So the irrigation that we're putting in, you don't get that done. Then you, you, you better not plant because whatever you put there is going to die Yeah, in, exactly. in, in May when it goes up to 104 degrees and it doesn't rain anymore. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Irrigation is crucial, man. I mean, that's one thing I actually, I have a whole chapter on in my book. There's not a lot of other farming books got into that, but I get into very detailed, uh, ways to set up irrigation for farms. It's something that a lot of people, it's a lot of people overlook. People are like, oh yeah, plant and then get the irrigation in afterwards. No, 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 don't do that. You'll create a whole world of butt hurt for yourself doing that. <laughs> <laughs> so hey, you you got the book coming out. You also have an online course. Can you talk about that a little bit here as we wrap up? 
Yeah, totally. So uh, profitableurbanfarming.com. It's a uh, it's everything you could ever learn from me. We spent two years building it. Um, obviously, it has more than the book because the book is limited to what I think it's 266 pages. The online course, there's there's no limit to the information, and so we really get into every single thing to the most minute detail. And um, it's there to basically train an army of farmers to get them out equipped with the right knowledge and systems so they can get out there and just crush it. Um, so that's ProfitableUrbanFarming.com. And, um, yeah, if people want to learn more about what I'm doing, they go to my um, – I'm going to have my new website up shortly, uh, probably in a week, TheUrbanFarmer.co. And, uh, but if they want to see my farm, they can go GreenCityAcres.com. And uh, find Green City Acres on Facebook as well. Great, man. I'll make sure I have links to all of that stuff. And, again, the main website that you've got coming, and if there's stuff there now, but I just think you're, you're not really prime time with it yet, is theurbanfarmer.co. Folks, co is yep. a domain. It exists. I, I got a little <laughs> short domain, um, and I ended up stopped using it. I got it for, to use with Bitly. Um, it was tspc.co. And at the time, like okay. auto filling the M, and I finally got fed up with it. I just have it as a redirect now, and so people can on their phone or whatever. They're not typing the survival, pot, you know, all the way out. And I get people all the time. Oh, it's a tspc.com and it's right. a folder yeah, yeah. page. It's 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 co co is a real thing. It really exists, and so it's the urbanfarmer.co <laughs> profitable urban farming. And uh, Green City Acres, I'll make sure there's links to all that stuff in the show notes today, dude. And thank you for being with us, and thank you for having a great conversation with me. I know awesome. like, everything we talked about wasn't necessarily about farming, but I actually feel like it was because if you're going to do something for a living like farming, then you've got you've to have business acumen, you've got to have work ethic and dedication, and you've got to accept the fact that some of it's just going to be damn hard, and some of it is going to fail. Like you, like I had one of my customers like that wants more duck eggs right now. We just had this coyote attack. We lost 24 birds. Totally. It's winter. We're running artificial lights, but you can only do so much with that. And I had to say, eventually, listen, I can't go out there, grab one of my ducks and go, give me a freaking egg and make it lay an egg. Like it's, it's, it's a natural process. It ovulates and produces <laughs> an egg, lays an egg. Yeah. They don't respond to coercion, right? Not like humans. Yeah, and I can't go out and look at a lettuce plant and say, I command thee to grow because of my privileged station in life. It doesn't give a damn. It's, it, if it doesn't get what yeah, it exactly. eats, it won't grow. And if I don't give it, if I don't give it the right conditions, I might even grow it. But then the, if I don't have the right, if it's stressed, now I've got bitter lettuce. It's not going to meet the expectations of my customer. And all of that requires like this, this dogged determination to figure shit out and eventually go, oh. you know what? Maybe I shouldn't be growing that here. Maybe I should find the stuff that I can grow here that I make money with. Because I bet you if, if I said, you know what, dude? I don't care if you like Canada. I'm going to abduct your ass and you're going to come live here in Fort Worth, Texas. And I change you up here and said, you can do your business, but you're going to do it here. <laughs> you would you would end up figuring it out, right? You'd sweat a lot more and you would be totally oh, successful. Yeah. You would probably grow a lot of different things here. Even different, just different varieties. You might still grow a lot of lettuce, but you are not going to grow the same varieties because you're going to find oh, stuff sure. that doesn't freaking bolt here, right? Oh, I'd love, I'd love to do that. I, I, I always love those challenges, and that's why that's why I travel a lot to go and work with other farmers to get a get a good idea how things work in different places. But it's funny. I just want to leave it with one thing. It's funny that you mentioned how you know you can't force your ducks, and it's because. <laughs> 
you know, people say, what's the most profitable, profitable form of farming? And it's actually farming humans because they will respond to coercion. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, they, they'll, they'll, um, they, you can, you can threaten a human and they'll, they'll respond. You can't threaten a cow and say, in the future, I will come and take your stuff if you don't give me milk. They don't respond to that. Humans do. So it's an interesting. There's a book about that by Stefan Molyneux. It's called The Handbook of Human Ownership. Yes. Got yes. for new tax farmers, I believe. Oh yeah. A manual for the new tax farmer. That's, oh. if you're ever bored, guys, if I don't have a podcast out, it's on YouTube. You can listen to them, read the whole thing for free. It's about an hour and a half. It'll blow you away. It'll, it'll, it'll scare the shit out of you with the accuracy. Oh, it's intense. It's, like, it's intense. It, but, it's, but the truth, the truth will set you free. I, I, I used to get bummed out about that kind of stuff, but now I actually find it quite liberating understanding the way things work and, um, you know, knowing how you can work around them. I think, I think it's a, it's, it's good stuff to know. Well, here, that's actually a great closing question then for you. Um, it, like you, I'm an anarchist, and I get I have my own answer to this question, but I get it all the time. Like, well, since you're not going to participate in government, you're not going to work for changing government or whatever. Like, and since you're probably not ever going to live in a world where it is, you know, your anarchist view of the way things should be, what's the point? How would you answer that question? What's the point? I mean, it's, it's like I get up every day. I, I'm still in the driver's seat of my life, and all I can do is do the best I can to create the world that I want to see. Will that world ever exist? It does right now. It does in the world that I live in right now. And this is the thing that's so funny about, about the state is that we do certain things in our life. And then when, when it comes to government, all the things that we do in our own personal lives, we, we are contradictory when it comes to the state. Like when I want to help my neighbor, I don't go and first rob my other neighbor to go and help them. I help them because I want to help them through the, the kindness of my heart and I want to do good things. So I, I don't really care about, about trying to make the world an anarchy. I, I don't know if that'll ever happen. Yeah. Um, all, all I do is the best I can in my community. And you know what? A lot of people don't like the things that I say about, about anarchism. They get all butt hurt when I, when I challenge things about the idea of the state. But you know what? At the end of the day, I'm a farmer in a community and I feed people and I provide value. And, you know, we might uh, have different ideas about how the world is, but at the end of the day, I'm providing value to people. And I think that's all we can, that's, that's what we should all do is just provide some damn value. Get out there and help people. You don't, you don't like the way the world is, then get out there and change it. And so that's what I'm trying to do. That's what you're doing. Well, and I, I think that like, so if, if the goal is change, the people that have created the most dramatic changes in the last 200 years, whether they identified as anarchists or not, the actions that they took that actually created the change were anarchistic actions. Absolutely. Uh, you go to like, right? old hero celebrities like Rosa Parks. Well, it just didn't sit in the back of the bus. He didn't go down to the town hall and go, may I please not sit in the back of the bus or we need to pass a law. Just sit exactly. the hell with this. Or you come modern times, right? Like if you look at the work like Ron Finley has done in, in, in LA. Totally. He didn't go totally. say, can I, I please plant a, a garden here? He just kept doing it. They turned it out, tore it out. He did it again. He did it again until, you know, some of these people that you would think of as being like, you know, the, the hoodlum types, you know, turn that, that power maybe for good a bit and said, no, I don't think I'm going to be tearing this out today. Because my kid's yeah. eating this food now. You're not doing this. And they, they made the people in the government look so stupid 
they're like, okay, we'll pass a law now that says you're allowed to do this. Absolutely, and that's the beauty well, of social media today. Thank you for telling today. me I'm allowed to do. Or I can't think of the guy's name, but the dude in 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 Arizona that Jeff Lawton did a video on where he was cutting the curbs and yeah, yeah. water deposits, and they they transformed this whole neighborhood, and there's all this all this little economy going there and all that. And now you know, I think it's North Tucson or something like that comes out and says like, new developments have to be done this way. Yeah. And so, like, all that stuff happened, and you could just go down this list a mile long, or, you know, who's, like, one of the biggest heroes in our space is Joel Salatin. The man wrote a book called Everything I Want to Do is Illegal. Is illegal, yeah, exactly. But so I mean, it, to me, it's like, the point is, okay, number one, everything you said, plus, if you actually want to get something done, then it's always the anarchist that exposes the stupidity, if, if you would, or proves that the, the misconception is a misconception to where then the people that are still in the system end up saying, you know what, and I mean the good people that are still in the system, Curtis, mm -hmm. they actually drag the system toward anarchy. Oh, totally, totally. You know, it was good people that said, hey, you know, that, that made things like the Civil Rights Act happen. Because when I say, well, what has government done well? It's like, well, they did the civil rights law. Well, if the government didn't screw that up in the first place, they wouldn't have had to. Yeah, exactly. Right? So I'm not saying there's no place for government, because I think if, if you and I got our way today by the push of a button, and the whole state apparatus just, just went away today, society's not ready for it, right? No way. That's because people, people are too dependent. The state, the state has been coddling us for so long that if you have – in a world of where people are resilient and strong, you don't need the government. But that, that's, why, that's why the government continuously makes people more dependent. That's, that's, that's my own personal belief. Well, too. I mean think about it like lions, right? Like a lion is totally capable of living on the plains of Africa. And if we took a thousand lions out of the zoos today and turned them loose in places on the plains of Africa where you can say there's enough space and room and lack of lions here for these lions to exist, most of them would die. Absolutely. Right? They, would they, die, yeah. they don't know how to be a lion anymore. But some of them would live, yeah. and the tough would start to repopulate the lion population. But if you were responsible with the fact that, okay, I screwed this lion up, and people have done work like this, they take the lion back into the – and they teach the lion to be a lion, and then the lion eventually goes away, finds a pride, creates a pride, whatever, and, and becomes a wild animal again. And, exactly. and fills its role. So, like, I think that's where society is. So, like, we're like those lions that can survive. Absolutely. And we're right. trying to show people to, to build resilience and, and, you know, uh, a community dependency, not, not this sort of self-reliance thing, which is important to some degree, but build reliance within a community. It's, it's, it's all this, um, it's, uh, decentralization, right? This is the, a lot of these ideas are based on decentralization and nature is very decentralized. People say, well, give me an example where anarchy is. Anarchy is everywhere Ever. all the time. Who told you and, to marry? Who told you what pants to put on today? Exactly. Right? <laughs> it, it, it is. It is. It exists everywhere, and it has for for forever. And and even like what you were saying about the anarchists are the ones that are making the world a better place. It's totally true because they're not necessarily that they're self-identifying anarchists, but they're voluntarily, without coercion, making things that improve the lives of human beings. Government isn't the thing that makes people's lives better. It's technology. Technology and innovation is what makes our lives better. And those all come from the free market. Those all come from people voluntarily deciding to do something. And instead of asking, and that's why I always say it's like, it's better to ask forgiveness than to ask permission. Stop asking people if you can do this garden or if you can just go do it, get it done. And sometimes you might get in a little bit of trouble. And I'm not encouraging people to go out and get in trouble, but you know, we got to stop, you know, pussyfooting around here. Like let's, let's get some stuff done. Yeah, I didn't know that was a seed I planted there. I mean, 
<laughs> like, be <laughs> smart about it, right? Like, so, like, I'm all for, like, trying to minimize the, the amount of taxes you have to pay. But but don't be Edwin Schiff who just died in prison, right? Yeah, exactly. Don't don't take that approach. Don't yeah. don't take the frontal assault. And and what you see is like these anarchists that I mention, or or people that have done anarchist things that I mention, they always do it in such a way that it hurts the state to attack them. Instead of directly attacking the state, they do it in such a way that they garner so much support that you make and that's the thing like a politician can't afford to really look stupid i mean they look stupid all the time but you know what i mean when i say yeah, that where like totally. i can afford to look stupid i don't care as yeah. long as most of the people that support me don't think i'm stupid it doesn't matter i'm not looking for a majority i'm just looking for enough uh, of of support in my community that i can make a living and do so in in, in the bounds of my own ethics where a politician has to pander so you can actually turn that like jujitsu like against them and make them like okay now you look dumb Exactly. Where that's, if you just go ask them, then they can just say, no one gets fired or, or voted out of office for just saying no. It's, it's saying yes that you get in trouble for. So we'll just say no and we'll keep things the way they are. And enough of the, the, the peasants, so to speak, that show up to vote will keep us in charge. But if you make them look dumb, like, okay, yeah. now you got LAPD pulling, you know, tomato plants out while there's a drug deal going down, down the road, some little kids being shot. Yeah. I, yeah, uh, exactly. And that, that's, that's, that's a big concept there. Like even that can go into all kinds of things, but I, in the, in this book, anti-fragile, he talks about optionality and it's basically where you benefit no matter what happens. So yeah. it, in the, in the financial world, it's like taking out an option. You're buying, you're kind of betting on a risk. You're, you're putting money down so that if something fails, you'll benefit. And, and, and if it succeeds, you'll benefit. We can build optionality into everything. Huh. Everything we do is people. And it's, it, once you start going down that road of thought, I, this, this book has been blowing my mind, but this, this concept of optionality is amazing where you always look at how you can benefit from the failure and how you can benefit from the success. And like being a farmer right now, if you're a small scale, relatively diversified farmer, you will benefit from success and failure of the system. And so that's, that's, that's what my farm is all about. If times are good and people are eating at high-end restaurants, my farm is succeeding. If times are tough and there's scarcity, my farm is succeeding because people need to eat. So you want to set yourself up in that center where you can benefit from however things go. Man, that's that's great stuff. Let, let's wrap there because I think we're at like almost two hours here, and yeah. uh, we do have to wrap. But I've been closing the show with different music, uh, stuff from recent times, maybe 10 years old to – I think I played, um, what did I play yesterday? Uh, the Battle of New Orleans, right? Uh, that old, old tune. Uh, but today we're gonna actually close with a piece of music that you wrote that's in, in a trailer video you have out. Uh, can you tell people a little bit about this piece of music? It's gonna be all instrumental, right? Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a percussion piece. Um, I was trying to, I used to actually do, uh, film scoring for, for movies. I used to be a music composer. And, um, and so this this is it's very cinematic it's uh it starts really kind of dark when the, the video is sh kind of showing the lawn and and the how how silly lawns are and environmentally um destructive they can be and then it really picks up and then kind of rocks you out with all this intense imagery of urban farming so i tried to convey that through this piece of music and it's percussion um, I, I've never written a percussion piece actually, like a straight percussion piece with no, there's no chords, no harmony or anything. It's all percussion. So I, it was a concept I had this winter and I, I met a drummer who I really liked. And, um, so 
I had him over for multiple sessions tracking ideas that I had. And then I basically just recorded a bunch of stuff from him. And then I took it in my computer. I composed the framework of a composition. And then we wrote that as a score. And then I went into the studio and had him replay it in a, in a nice studio. And so that's, that's what it is. So we're going to hear that now, guys, here as we wrap up today. And uh, I'll have a link to that actual trailer, trailer video along with all of other uh, Curtis's uh, links in the uh, show notes for you guys to get today. And again, Curtis, man, thank you for being with us today on the Survival Podcast. Thanks a lot, Jack. It's always a pleasure. All right, folks, and with that, this has been Jack Spirico today along with Curtis Stone helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. <laughs>